Church, let's bow together for a word of prayer before we get started. Lord, you are worthy of our praise in every thought and deed. Uh, Lord, you are great. You're high and exalted. You're mighty. You are not a God who is in any way our equal. And so, Father, we come this morning again to bow before you, to acknowledge our dependence on you, to acknowledge your great worth and your great power and your great goodness. And, Father, we also see that all of that was put on display for us ultimately in the person of Jesus, who is king, who is mighty, who is good. And so, Lord, as we turn our attention now to the Gospels, we pray that we would see your character revealed to us through your Son. And we ask your help in that, and we pray it in his name. Amen. Church, go and grab your Bibles this morning and uh, open up with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Bear with me as I walk back down and grab my glasses. So today marks the beginning of what Christians usually refer to as Holy Week. Um, it starts today as we acknowledge what is usually called Palm Sunday, and it extends to next Sunday when we celebrate the Lord's resurrection. So it's just a week, it's just seven days, but you can make the argument that everything we believe as Christians hinges on these seven days. And that's why if you ever sit down and just read through the Gospels, you'll notice the Gospel writers spend a disproportionate amount of time on this one week of Jesus' life. So think of what the Gospel writers are doing. They're, they're trying to clearly communicate to us who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. So the Gospels are not typical biographies. They're not, they're not just written to give us the full life story of Jesus. The Gospel writers choose the events from Jesus' life very intentionally. They're highlighting events from Jesus' life that show us beyond shadow of a doubt He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God. And so as they're focusing on those key events in Jesus' life, most of their attention goes to this very last week. Just to emphasize that. So John's Gospel stretches over 21 chapters, I think. And 50% of John's Gospel is focused on this one week from the life of Jesus. We're going to be in Mark, Mark's Gospel this morning. 40% of Mark's Gospel is focused on one week from the life of of Jesus. And that, that's such an unusual thing for Mark. One of the things that Mark is known for in his writing is that Mark always moves very quickly. So Mark is constantly on the go in his writing style. So he'll describe an event in Jesus' life and then in a split second he'll jump forward two months and describe another event and then jump forward six weeks and hit another event. So Mark's always in a hurry through his gospel until you come to this last week. When you come into the last week of Jesus' life, Mark's gospel all of a sudden slows down. It's as if the events that happen in these last seven days of Jesus' earthly ministry are too important to rush through. And so if you want to understand what we believe about Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, you can't miss this week. And as I mentioned, it starts with what is often called Palm Sunday, or sometimes it is called the triumphal entry of Jesus, where Jesus comes riding into the city of Jerusalem on the back of this donkey as crowds of people are gathered around cheering him on as he enters into the city. And for Jesus' apostles, this must have been a bright spot for them because this is what they had been hoping for. 
Jesus' disciples were wanting him to announce himself as king. They were wanting him to claim the throne over Israel. But Jesus had been telling them that wasn't the plan. He'd been telling them that he was actually going to Jerusalem not to claim the throne, but he was going to Jerusalem to die. But as they entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, they must have felt like maybe their hopes were going to be fulfilled. Maybe Jesus really was going to Jerusalem to reign as king. And there's all this excitement. It really looks like a coronation ceremony. Jesus is being escorted by crowds of people waving palm branches. It looks like it's moving towards something grand. And that's why the end of this story is so surprising. It looks like it's moving toward a grand celebration But we'll see this morning that he enters Jerusalem with all sorts of fanfare and then the whole event in a split second seems to fizzle out. The crowds that escorted him into Jerusalem in an instant disappear and you're left with Jesus and the apostles standing there all alone and and then he and the apostles, as soon as they get there, turn around and leave. So they ride into Jerusalem with all this excitement. They get to the city and almost instantly they turn around and walk back out. It almost feels anticlimactic. And so I want to think this morning about what's going on. What are we celebrating on Palm Sunday? What's happening with this event? So if your Bible's open to Mark 11, we're going to read the first 11 verses of this chapter together. And by the way, this story is told in all four of the Gospels. So all four Gospel writers see this as a significant event in the life of Jesus. Mark 11, beginning in verse 1, says... Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you've entered it, you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he'll send you here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, Why are you, What are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. And then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So what's happening here? I want to break this passage down under three main headings. Here's the first one. Number one, I want to think about Jesus and the donkey. Did you notice how much of this passage is focused on this colt of a donkey that is brought to Jesus to ride into Jerusalem? Seven of the verses focus on the animal. So why is that? What's going on here? Well, before we get to that, let me just quickly set the stage for you. So Mark chapter 11 opens just to the east of the city of Jerusalem. The the village is called Bethany. Bethany is where some of Jesus' closest friends lived. You'll remember that this is where Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha lived. 
And so normally when Jesus would go to Jerusalem for the different feast, Bethany is where he would stay. Bethany is two miles. You would leave Jerusalem to the east and cross through the Kidron Valley and then begin to climb up the Mount of Olives, and that's where the village of Bethany sat, just two miles east of Jerusalem. And so Jesus and the apostles tended to use Bethany as a sort of holiday and express during feast seasons. They would spend the nights in Bethany, and then during the days they would walk the two miles, spend the days in Jerusalem, and then they would go back to Bethany during the evenings. And it was just a couple of weeks before this that one of the most remarkable events in Jesus' ministry happened in Bethany. Do you remember what it was? Jesus' good friend Lazarus got very sick. And Jesus intentionally delayed going to Bethany until Lazarus had died. So that by the time Jesus got there, Lazarus had already been dead for four days. His body, in fact, had already been put in a tomb. It was over. There was nothing Jesus could do now, they thought. But Jesus walked to Lazarus' tomb, and with the whole village watching, Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. It wasn't an invitation. It wasn't a request. It was a command, and dead Lazarus obeyed it. A heart that hadn't beat in four days suddenly started pumping. And flesh that had started decaying and stinking was instantly brought together and made whole, and Lazarus walked out of the tomb. And of course, the crowds were blown away. Of course, Jesus had done lots of miracles. He had given sight to the blind. Um, He had made the lame walk. But this was different. This wasn't a healing. This was a resurrection. And it stood this whole area on its head. His popularity instantly, you can imagine, in this region exploded because most of Jesus' ministry wasn't there around Jerusalem. Most of Jesus' ministry was in the northern part of Israel, the territory of Galilee. But the greatest miracle he did, he actually does two miles away from Jerusalem, right under the noses of the religious leaders, which is hugely significant. Because when they get word of what's happened in Bethany, how do they respond? The warning sirens start going off among the religious leaders. And it seems to them at this point that Jesus' popularity is out of control. So they've always, for years at least, wanted to kill Jesus. But this is the point where they reach a consensus and they decide Jesus has to die. After he raises Lazarus from the dead, his popularity to them looks like it is out of control. And they see Jesus as a huge threat to them. The, The Romans, of course, are in power. They're in control of Israel at this time. But the religious leaders, even within the Roman system, have a pretty sweet deal. They have power, they have wealth, and they see Jesus' growing popularity as a threat to the whole system. So it's at this point they decide Jesus, without doubt, has to die. And so notice what's happened. Right outside of Jerusalem, two miles outside in Bethany, on the one hand, Jesus' popularity after he raises Lazarus explodes. But on the other hand, the animosity directed at Jesus also begins to explode. The tension with Jesus and the religious leaders has now reached an all-time high. And so Jesus and the apostles withdraw from that area. They leave, and they kind of leave the crowds in suspense. We're pulling all the Gospels together here. They leave all the crowds in suspense, and everyone is wondering after this great miracle, is he going to come back again? 
Because they know what's happening with the religious leaders. And the question is, will Jesus even show his face in Jerusalem again? Well, it's just a few weeks after that, that one of the most important events on the Jewish calendar comes. The Feast of Passover. Passover was one of what they called the pilgrim feast. There were three pilgrim feasts every year where every able-bodied Jew was expected to travel to Jerusalem for the celebration. And so every year during Passover, the population just boomed. Archaeologists say that in Jesus' day, the typical population in Jerusalem was somewhere between 50,000 and 100,000 people. So not by modern standards, not a big city at all. But during Passover, the number of people in Jerusalem could explode to as many as 2 million people. So you just imagine you have pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims from everywhere, flocking toward Jerusalem for Passover. And most of the Jews who came down to Jerusalem from the north, from Galilee, where Jesus was originally from, they would come down from the east. They would travel down and they would pass through the village of Bethany and across the Kidron Valley, and that's how they would get to Jerusalem. And so Jesus and the apostles have withdrawn from the area after he raises Lazarus from the dead. But now as Passover approaches, they start making their way back towards Jerusalem. So imagine Jesus and the 12 apostles. They're now mixing in with these massive crowds of Jewish pilgrims who are traveling down the road. And the crowds are hearing the stories about Lazarus being raised. So news of Jesus making his way is uh, passing through these crowds like electricity. And as they travel, Jesus is continuing to do miracles. You'll notice Mark's gospel tells the story that in Jericho, Jericho is only about 15 miles away from Bethany, as they're making their journey toward Jerusalem, Jesus sees this blind man named Bartimaeus. And Jesus opens the eyes of this blind man. And so you've got these huge crowds watching Jesus doing miracles. Excitement is exploding. And then they get to Bethany. And when they get to Bethany, Jesus stops to have a meal with his friends there. And do you remember what happens during that meal? You'll know the story. It's during this meal, right before he goes to Jerusalem, that Lazarus' sister Mary comes into the room with a bottle of precious ointment. And she breaks the neck, she opens up this flask of oil, and she goes to Jesus and she pours it out on Jesus' feet. And then she takes her long hair and she begins to dry Jesus' feet off with her hair. Just this ultimate act of adoration, of love toward Jesus. And when Judas, the hypocrite, begins to protest about the waste, Jesus hushes him up and says, She is preparing my body for burial. Well, that event, if you piece together the timeline, seems to have happened the night before what we just read in Mark chapter 11. So it was the night before or the day before when Jesus had had this meal and Mary had anointed Jesus with oil. And so the next morning, Jesus and the apostles get up to walk the last two miles into Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. The Passover celebration lasts basically a week. So they're going to cover this last two miles into the city. And before they leave, Jesus tells two of his apostles to go on ahead. He's got a mission for him. He tells them that in the nearby village, they'll go in and they'll find a donkey, a colt of a donkey tied up. 
And they're to unloose the donkey and they're to bring it to Jesus. And he tells them if anybody asks them what they're doing, they're to say, the Lord has need of it. Now just to go ahead and give you a teaser, this whole scene is being presented. Jesus, I should say, is intentionally presenting himself in this whole story. He is showing himself as king. Okay, He's presenting himself in Mark 11 as the king Israel's been waiting for. And this is part of that. Because one of the things that kings had the authority to do in Israel and really throughout the whole Roman Empire is kings had a sort of eminent domain power. Where if the king decided that he needed your donkey or he needed your beast of burden for some purpose, he could take your beast of burden and ride it if he needed it. And that's what Jesus is doing. He says, you go get that donkey and if they ask you why you're taking it, you say, the Lord needs it. So they get this donkey and they bring it to Jesus and then they throw their cloaks over the back of it as a kind of makeshift uh, saddle. And off Jesus goes riding toward Jerusalem. It's a pretty straightforward, simple story, right? But here's the question. Why is it here? And why do we get six or seven verses that are all about this donkey? Jesus says, go get it and bring it. And it's tied. And then they get it and it's tied. And they bring, I mean, we get it already. There's a donkey that Jesus is going to ride into town. And there even seems to be extra emphasis on the donkey being tied up. Did you notice as we read it how many times it said, you will find a colt tied, untie it. They found the colt tied. They untied it. Why are we, we get it. They had to untie the colt to bring it to Jesus. Why is this here? This whole story is being set up as a fulfillment of prophecy. Where Jesus is consciously showing them he's the Messiah that the Old Testament predicted. Even this part about the donkey being tied and untied, it is Jesus intentionally making an Old Testament point. If you go back to the book of Genesis, you'll remember the story in Genesis uh, when the patriarch Jacob is on his deathbed. He is about to die, and so he calls in his sons to bless his sons. This was a hugely important thing in the ancient world. You would give the patriarchal blessing to your sons. And as he blesses each one of his sons, he also declares a kind of prophecy on the family line of each son. And listen to what Jacob says to his son Judah. Listen to the blessing and the prophecy. This is Genesis 49. I'm starting in verse 8. He says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers will praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies your father's children shall bow down before you. What point is he making here? What's the line of Judah going to be? This is going to be the kingly line. All the other tribes will bow down before Judah. He continues, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter, that's the kingly rod. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Do you see how the whole thing is painting the picture that Judah is going to be the kingly line? The kings of Israel are going to rise from Judah. David is born in the line 
of Judah. The Messiah would come in the line of Judah. And Genesis 49 is where the whole idea of the king, the Messiah being the lion of the tribe of Judah comes from. He describes Judah as the lion who is lying in wait. That the lion is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And then there's also that obscure point that Judah has this donkey that is tied up to the vine. Did you get that? What in the world is that all about? Judah's donkey is tied to the vine, is emphasized. Well, then Jesus comes on the scene here in Mark 11, and several times Jesus makes the point, go untie the donkey. It's an intentional reference to this whole story in Judah. It's like Jesus is saying, the lion of the tribe of Judah is here. It's time for the king and the lion of Judah to present himself in Jerusalem. So go untie Judah's donkey and bring it so that he can ride. But why is he riding in the first place? If you've read through the Gospels, you know, as Jesus traveled around, Jesus didn't ride, he walked. And that was true for all the pilgrims who went to Jerusalem. You didn't, you didn't ride, you walked. So why is Jesus riding now? Again, it's all an intentional fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Listen to Zechariah. Chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. You get the prophecy in Zechariah 9? Israel's king was coming. And not just Israel's king. God was going to send a king who was going to reign from sea to sea. In other words, this is going to be a worldwide, not a localized, this is going to be a worldwide king, a king who in the end will bring peace to the world. But how did Zechariah say this king would present himself? This king would present himself riding the colt of a donkey. Do you see how clear Jesus is making this? This is not ambiguous. Everybody there recognizes what's going on. That's why the crowds gather and begin to cheer. He is intentionally presenting himself as the king of Israel. He is intentionally presenting himself as the Messiah that they have been waiting for. It's like Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the lion of the tribe of Judah you've been hungering for. I'm the king you're waiting for. And he rides in showing himself to be that. And the fact that Jesus does this so unambiguously, so clearly, it forces every one of us to make a decision, right? Once Jesus does this, we either have to acknowledge him as king or we have to reject him as a madman. So as soon as the guy says, hey, I'm the king of the world, he doesn't give you the option anymore to stay neutral. As soon as a man says, hey, I'm the worldwide king, you can no longer just say, yeah, I like Jesus. I think he's a great moral teacher. No, no, no. This doesn't give you the option to do that. You either worship him or you reject him. But these are not the actions of a sane moral teacher. He is either a madman or he is the king. Here he comes riding into the city of Jerusalem. But, but why now? I mean, why is Jesus presenting himself as king now? 
Because if you read through the Gospels before this, Jesus has always avoided this sort of thing, intentionally avoided it. For instance, if you think back to John chapter 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, the crowds are there and they're ready to make him king. And what does he do? He leaves. He withdraws from the area. The typical pattern has been as soon as the crowds get worked up about Jesus being king, he throws water on the fire. He doesn't embrace it. He avoids it. So why is he allowing this to happen? And not just allowing it, why is he embracing it now? It's all about timing, isn't it? It's all about timing because Jesus knew the minute he presented himself this way, the minute he went to Jerusalem and announced that he is this king God promised, that the countdown clock would start ticking. Him doing this would set all the gears in motion where the religious leaders would decide once and for all he had to die right away. But up to this point, it hasn't been God's time for him to die. But now it is. God had appointed before the foundation of the world that Jesus would die in Jerusalem at this exact point. That he would die in Jerusalem during Passover. Why would he die during Passover? Do you remember what Passover was all about? Where God had made this huge promise to Abraham that he was going to multiply Abraham's descendants like the stars in the sky and it happened. Abraham's descendants multiply into this huge nation. But then Abraham's descendants find themselves as slaves. They're in bondage in Egypt and so God sends Moses to set them free. But of course Pharaoh's not too keen on that idea. Pharaoh doesn't just want to let their workforce walk out of town. And so God begins to hammer Pharaoh with plagues, ten plagues in a row. And it's the last of those plagues that is by far the most severe. Where God says that he is going to kill the firstborn son in every house in Egypt. Kill the firstborn in every home in Egypt. Okay, but it wasn't just Egyptians living in Egypt. Who else was living in Egypt at this time? Israel was. So if judgment is going to fall on every home in Egypt, that means the Israelites are going to have to face this judgment too, and rightfully so. Because when God says, when He explains why He's sending this judgment, He says He's sending this judgment because of the idolatry in Egypt. Egypt, Egypt worshipped false gods. Well, guess who else had been worshipping the false gods of Egypt? The Israelite slaves had been worshiping the false gods. And so, so they are destined to judgment just like every home in Egypt is destined to judgment. But God provided a way that they could escape that judgment, right? God told them that if each family would take a lamb and would slaughter that lamb and would put the blood on the, on the lintel and the doorpost of their home as a mark of their trust in God, if they would do that, then God's judgment, here's where the name comes from, God's judgment would pass over that home. And so what happened that dreadful night is that there was death in every single home in Egypt that night. There was either the death of the firstborn son or there was the death of the lamb as a substitute. 
But God's judgment fell on every single household. His judgment either fell on the family or His judgment fell on the lamb as a substitute. And that was such a significant event. God was making such a massive point through that that God commanded Israel to continue to celebrate that every single year. So every year after that, in fact, in Jesus' day, it's estimated that during Passover week, nearly a quarter of a million lambs would be sacrificed in Jerusalem. It was a bloodbath for the whole week. As every family is bringing a lamb to the temple to be slaughtered and the blood to be poured out as a reminder of Passover. And the whole thing is a great big picture by God. that This is what, this is what sin deserves. Our sin deserves the horrible wrath, even more horrible than what Egypt had. Our sin deserves the horrible wrath of God. We have rebelled against the gracious God who created us. And the death angel should visit every one of us in eternal wrath in hell. But the promise of Passover is that God would provide a substitute. God would provide one who would take the wrath in our place. And so God's design is that Jesus would present himself as king leading up to Passover week and that he would die during Passover because he is being presented not only as the king, he's being presented as the ultimate Passover lamb. All the animals that had been slaughtered, the millions of lambs slaughtered over the years didn't actually do anything. They were symbols, they were shadows, they were pictures that were all just screaming out, we need one to represent us. If we're going to escape God's wrath, we need a substitute to take the wrath for us. Every lamb ever sacrificed was shouting that same message. And then God the Father has Jesus come into Jerusalem to be slaughtered during Passover as the shout that not only is He King, He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not only, not only is He the one who reigns on the throne, He's the one who's going to hang on the cross to take the just judgment of God for the sins of everyone who would ever flee to Him in faith. And let me just be clear on that. The, the Christian message is not, you need Jesus plus live a better life and God will accept you. The Christian message is not, turn over a new leaf and then Jesus will get you the rest of the way there. The Christian message is there is nothing you can do that will ever be sufficient. There's nothing you can add to it. The, the only thing you and I bring to the salvation equation is sin. The equal sign for what we deserve is nothing but judgment. But the message of the cross is in Jesus, God has done everything. Not only does God make the demands, in Jesus, God has met those demands. Jesus met the demands of righteousness. Jesus met the demands of judgment poured out. And the only way to salvation is by abandoning hope in yourself and putting all your trust in Jesus in your place. Passover lamb and the timing of this is meant to drive that point home. So here comes Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey to present himself as king at Passover. Leads to our second point. Number two, I want to see Jesus and the crowd. Jesus and the crowd. So 
I don't know if you noticed as we read the story, but the picture you get is that as Jesus is riding in, it's not just Jesus riding solo. There are crowds of people who are with him. I mentioned earlier the millions that would travel to Jerusalem during Passover. So these, these roads going into Jerusalem were just packed full of people during this time of year. And as the crowds realize that Jesus is one of the pilgrims that's there with them, the crowds are getting worked up in the excitement of it all. And the picture John gives is there are really two crowds. There's, there's the group traveling with Jesus from Bethany. And then when the people in Jerusalem hear Jesus is coming, they, some of them leave and go out and meet him. And so you've got these two crowds of people that come crashing together on the road right outside of Jerusalem. And when the crowds realize what's happening, they are, they're game to get involved. They realize Jesus is presenting himself as king, and so they start treating Jesus as king. They, they take off their robes, we're told, and they lay them on the ground in front of this royal procession as it makes its way. And it's like they're making their own red carpet entrance for Jesus into Jerusalem. And laying your robe on the ground in front of someone was a, it was a formal way of, of expressing submission. It was, a way, it was their way of saying, we're behind you, Jesus. We're ready to follow you, Jesus. But follow him where? Where did they think Jesus was going? Well, they, they thought Jesus was going straight to the palace. That's what they thought. They, because they thought their biggest problem was the Romans. The Romans occupied Israel, and that's what they see as their greatest danger. So their hope is Jesus will lead them to victory over Rome, because that's what they see as the problem. They need freedom. They need deliverance. They need a better economy. So they're all on board as long as that's where Jesus is going. But what happens is, as soon as they realize that's not where Jesus is going, they, they get off the Jesus bandwagon in a hurry. They're all on board as long as they think Jesus is going to fulfill the agenda they have in mind. But when it becomes clear Jesus has his own agenda, they're not interested anymore. And if I could just pause and say, this is still a lot of people's view of Christianity. That you sign up on Jesus. You get on the Jesus bandwagon because it'll help you in all these ways. So get on the bandwagon and it'll keep bad things from happening. And get on the bandwagon and it'll make sure everything is easy in your life. And get on the bandwagon and you'll get a better job. And get on the bandwagon and you'll get the perfect marriage. And get on the bandwagon and everything will be great. And then bad things happen. Then everything's not great. Then you still face difficulty in life and everybody wants to jump off the bandwagon. That Jesus thing doesn't work. But that's not who Jesus is. The call of the gospel is not come sign Jesus up to help you reach your agenda. The call of the gospel is not come incorporate Jesus into your life and he'll help you fulfill all your goals. Now, the call of the gospel is you come surrender yourself to Jesus who will save your soul. Jesus didn't say, come incorporate me and take my crown and use me. Jesus said, you come take up a cross and follow me. They're ready to sign Jesus up to get them where they want to go. They are not ready to bend their knee to Jesus to go where he's wanting to go. So here the crowds come celebrating along behind Jesus. And we find out in the other Gospels that as they march, they're waving palm branches, which, which just shows us they're thinking of this purely in political terms. Because in Jesus' day, palm branches were a kind of 
they're like a symbol of national pride. Just a few years after this, when the Israelites rebelled against Rome, they kind of pushed out the Romans, and they decided they didn't want to use Roman coins anymore. And so the people of Jerusalem minted their own coins for that period of time. And what symbol did they put on their coins? They put a palm branch on their coins because palm branches were a symbol of national pride. Waving a palm branch in Israel was like us waving an American flag on July 4th. That's what they're doing. There's this nationalistic pride that's building up as they wave their palm branches and lay down their cloaks. And what are they saying as Jesus rides? Look back at verses 9 and 10. We get a quotation. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That's a quotation from Psalm 118. Um, Psalms 113 through 118 are called the Hallel Psalms. Hallel means praise. They're called the praise Psalms. And those were Psalms that pilgrims would sing during festivals in Jerusalem. Particularly, they would sing psalms like this, 113 through 118, during the Feast of Passover. So this is a psalm that the Jews had been singing already. It was already at the front of their minds. And so as Jesus comes riding in, it's just natural. They start singing this psalm about Jesus. Listen to more of it. This is Psalm 118. I'm reading verses 25 through 26. This is part of this same psalm they're singing to Jesus. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And in Jesus' day, they believed this psalm was about the Messiah. It's looking toward the Messiah who would come and bring blessings. So for them to start singing Psalm 118 as Jesus rode into town, it's like us playing Hail to the Chief as the President rides in. Okay, they're expressing their expectations that Jesus is going to be this great political leader. And then what's the word they say? Hosanna. That's a transliteration of a word. Uh, Hosanna means save us or salvation has come. So Jesus rides in. They're waving their palm branches and saying salvation has arrived. They didn't know how right they were, though, did they? Salvation had arrived but not the kind of salvation they were looking for. That they were looking for a salvation that would come sit on a throne, but Jesus was coming with the kind of salvation that would require him first to hang on a cross. And if they would have just read a little bit more in Psalm 118, the very psalm they quote from, they would have known that. Just a few verses earlier, Psalm 118 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Yeah, the Messiah was coming as the cornerstone of salvation, but what would happen to that cornerstone first? The stone would be rejected. They didn't have room for that in their theology. That leads to the final point. Number three, Jesus and the temple. Let me ask you a question before I read the last verse. If all you did was read the first ten verses of Mark 11, what would you expect to happen next? So he rides into town, they're waving palm branches, singing Psalm 118, laying down their cloaks, a huge crowd in excitement. What would you expect to happen next? Well, you would expect Jesus and this entourage to ride straight to Pilate's palace, grab him by the hair, throw him off the throne, and for Jesus to claim his rightful seat, right? 
you would expect this whole crowd to go right to the palace. But that's not where he goes. Again, did you notice in verse 11 where he goes when he gets to Jerusalem? And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus doesn't go to the palace. That's not his destination. His destination is the temple. And even the crowd that's escorting him in, when they realize he's not going to the palace, as they get caught up in all the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem, the crowd just melts away. So that by the time Jesus gets to the temple, it's just him and the apostles again. And how do the people at the temple respond to Jesus? They don't. It's like the Lord of the temple shows up. The one they're ultimately supposed to be worshiping in the temple arrives. And they don't even recognize him. Right? This, this was the whole problem with Judaism in the, in the time is that it, it was completely hollow. It was dead. There was still lots of activity. They were still singing their songs and saying their prayers and giving their sacrifices and giving alms. They're still doing all of that stuff. But they're blind. They're doing all the motions, yet they're blind to God in all of it. And it's, it's still the biggest danger to folks who are in any way tied up in religious life. Is it, It's so easy in religious life to go through all the routines, to have feet that go to church and mouths that sing songs and hands that give offerings, to do all of that and yet all the while have a heart that's blind to God. Have a heart that doesn't see Jesus for who He is. Have a heart that never bows down to Christ as Lord. So just as quickly as Jesus arrives. I mean, I mentioned earlier, it's just so anticlimactic. There's all this buildup. He gets there. He rides to town. The crowds leave. He goes to the temple. Nobody responds. And so he turns around with the apostles and they immediately leave and they go back to Bethany. But this, this wouldn't be the last trip Jesus makes to the temple, would it? This is almost like a reconnaissance mission. Because we find out in the Gospels, Jesus goes back to the temple the very next day. And what does he do when he goes back? He goes on the attack. He goes into the temple and he flips over the tables and he drives out the money changers. He, he goes on the attack against their whole empty, dead religious system. And at that moment, everything turns against Jesus. See, See, they thought Jesus was going to show up and go on the attack against Rome, but he didn't. He didn't show up and go on the attack against their political opponents. He showed up and he went on the attack against their own empty, dead religious system. That was the biggest danger. It still is, I would add. For, for the folks who are in the service this morning, the greatest threat to the folks who are in this church is not some outside issue. It's not as bad as some of the political stuff is, your greatest threat today is not some political issue. It's not one of the isms out there. The chance of someone in this building ending up in hell because you get sucked into Scientology or something is very low. But the chances of someone in this building ending up in hell because you follow the emptiness of a religion without ever really bending your knee to Jesus as Lord is very high. So the, the threat that Jesus sees in Jerusalem is not Rome. The biggest threat Jesus sees in Jerusalem is their empty religious system. And he shows up and goes on the attack. 
So that's the story. I mean, it's, it, Palm Sunday is a real simple story, isn't it? Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, presenting himself as king, and he is, I would add, he is king. Not just king of Israel, he is king of time, he's king of history, he's king of the universe. But if he's really that, isn't it kind of odd that he shows up in Jerusalem? I'll, I'll ask it this way. What would you expect a king to ri- a show up riding? Not a donkey. You would expect a king to show up riding some grand, majestic war horse, right? The biggest horse you can find, that's what the king should ride in on. That's what the Romans would have done after all, but that's not what Jesus does. He, he comes riding into Jerusalem on a lowly donkey. This is like the president showing up riding in a, a Mini Cooper. He don't show up riding on a donkey. What is he doing? Well, Jesus is making the point that he's king, but he's coming as a different kind of king, right? The way that he would say it elsewhere is that the Son of Man didn't come to be served. Do you remember how he said it? He came to serve. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He's coming, he's coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's coming as a lowly king, a king who was coming to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, a king who was coming to pay the price to reconcile us to God, a king who was coming to take our sin debt on his own shoulders. But make no mistake about it, this isn't the final word of how Jesus would come. Listen to how John writes in Revelation. We're wrapping up. John's describing Jesus' second coming in Revelation 19. Starting in verse 11, John writes, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm reading that just to make the point that one day the nature of Jesus' kingship is going to change. Right now, Jesus is a king who offers peace to his enemies. Right now, he's a unique king. He's a king who offers amnesty to rebels. Meaning right now, he's a king who will actually let you switch sides. If you will renounce your allegiance to yourself and your sin and your pride and your greed and your lust, the Bible word is repentance. If you will give up living for yourself and you will bend your knee to Jesus as Savior King right now, there's forgiveness and peace. You can become part of His kingdom now. But it won't be that way forever. That's the point of Revelation 19. One day Jesus is coming, and on that day he's not coming, he's not coming to offer peace to his enemies. He's coming on that day to judge his enemies. There won't be any switching kingdoms when that day comes. And that's why the Bible says, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. So here's my question to you. Is you have this image in your mind of Jesus riding in, showing himself as king, have you 
bent your knee to Jesus as your king? Have you put your trust in Jesus as the final Passover lamb? The one who went to the cross to take the judgment for sin. Have you abandoned hope in everything else and put your trust in Jesus alone? So we're going to take a couple minutes now to prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. Through what Jesus did at the cross, Passover has been transformed. We are not a people who observe Passover every year anymore. Because all the symbols and all the shadows have been done away with. The true Passover lamb has come in Jesus. And the Lord's Supper is the picture of that. That Jesus' body was broken and His blood was shed so that through faith in Him we stand righteous before God. Those who were rebels and enemies through faith in Christ and allegiance to Christ as King have been brought into the family. We've been given a seat at the royal table through Christ. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to go to the Lord individually in prayer and prepare your hearts for what communion represents. Maybe it's a good time for you just to repent in your heart before God that you have you were one who was willing to incorporate Jesus as long as he would get to your agenda. That is not salvation and that is not Christianity. Christianity is not that God is a bit player in the story of your life. Christianity is we're the players in the story that God's writing. And our lives make sense in light of his story. We're here for him, for his glory. And it's an allegiance to Christ that we're brought into that story. So I'll give you a few minutes to pray and then I'll come up and lead us in communion.